I think I heard Francis Chan do this in his book, Crazy Love. I read it like 10 or 15 years ago. So let me, here's, here's, a, here's a kind of a scenario he put out there that I want to put out before we jump into the text. And that is this, suppose you were hired to be a extra in a movie that was being made. Now, that shouldn't be hard for us here in Western North Carolina because there's tons of movies that are made here. I don't know if you know this or not, but everything from The Last of the Mohicans to Hunger Games to Richie Ridge to all these different movies are made in whole or in part here. So just suppose for just a second, you are hired as an extra for the movie. You're not the star, you're the extra. Let's say you've got two to three seconds max on the screen. Now, it's right for you to be thrilled about that. I mean, it's right for you to tell people about this. Like, man, look at it. I'm in this scene. It's two to three seconds. I know that's the back of my head right there. You can barely see it. You know, if, when the movie comes out, it's like going to have the star on the very front. It's like starring such and such. And then you would be, even if you make the credits, you're going to be at the very end when everybody's already turned off the movie or everybody's already left the theater. You'll be like small font, 25th page. That's who you'll be. But you'll still be excited. And you'll be excited because, man, you got, you got to be a part of an awesome movie. You probably got a little bit of reward. You got your three seconds of kind of like, this is, this is my shot right here. This is awesome. But how silly would it be is if when the movie came out, you sent out invitations to all your friends and people you didn't even know say, come and see a movie about me. Come see this movie. It's about me. It's my movie. It's about me. People are like, bro. What are you talking about? You're there for three seconds. We didn't even know it was you. I'm glad your mom's happy, but man, we, we saw like the back of your head in a glancing scene. We didn't even know it was you. And I think it was Chan that's like, it's awesome in one sense, but it's tragic in another sense. And he says, how many believers actually we go through life thinking that the movie of life is about us? And from the very start of the Gospel of John, John is trying to make sure we remember, listen, the whole movie of life, it's not about us, it's about God, it's about Jesus. And so he starts off his whole book that says, you know what, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So he's like in, in act number one, in scene number one, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, steps out on the front porch of heaven and speaks the world into being. And then in act two, in scene two, Men and women, we rebel against God. And so John says, the darkness came into the world. That was sin that brought it into the world. And then he goes a little bit further and he's like, scene three. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us that the God, the God, the second person of the Trinity, he steps in and he, and he comes and lives and loves the people that had rebelled against him. And then in act four, he starts his public ministry. His public ministry is sort of what the passage is about today. And the passage today actually shows us the whole thing is about God. And it's an awesome, safe, secure, affirming place to find ourselves understanding that the main character, we're not the main character. We just get to leverage what God has given us for the main character. And there's only one hero in the Bible, but there are some good examples in the Bible. And one we see today, his name is John the Baptist. We're gonna see him again in chapter three, but John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, if you weren't here last week, there's a bunch of Johns. John the Baptist is not the one who wrote John, the book you're in right now, all right? But the John who wrote the book you're in right now talked about John the Baptist. And again, if you're new to Bible study, John the Baptist is not like, oh, he was the first Baptist, all right? It's not like, again, Mark the Methodist or, you know, uh, whatever, Aaron the Episcopalian. It's not it at all. It's, it's what he did. It's he baptized people. We'll get to that more in chapter three. 
But he says that's an example, and of all the people, John the Baptist is an example of two things that every disciple in this room and watching online, what you need to know. We need to know and be continually reminded of two things as disciples of Jesus. And what he's gonna show us is these two things are, you gotta know who you are and who you're not, really. And then that's all based off of knowing who he is. Because you don't know who you are until you know who God is. And what he's gonna say is, I know who I am, I know who I'm not, and I know who gives me that identity. So the first one is we gotta know who we are and we gotta know who we are not, so here's what it is. Verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites, just think religious establishment, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Who are you? Now, real quickly, John the Baptist is an odd, he's an odd character. He just is. He, he's that guy that you're like, man, he's not like the rest. He's not only not part of the religious establishment, the Bible, the description of the Bible is the fact is like, well, he's a hairy guy. That's what he calls him, a hairy man that wears a leather belt and he eats bugs. I mean, that's really what he is. And he's a country boy. He lives out, he, he grew up out in the country and he does his ministry out in the wilderness. And he is anything but a seeker-sensitive preacher. His whole message is repent. That's what it is. He looks up at the religious establishment and he says, you're a bunch of snakes. I mean, so much for, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's like, you are a viper, you're a snake, and that's who you are. And then after a while, when he gets to his second point, his point number one is repent. Point number two is repent. And then he's like, but point number three is repent. And they're like, but hey, wait a minute, our notebook is full. I've already, I journal, I've already got the first point and the second point and the third point. He's like, well, the fourth point is repent. Because you know what? It's a good reminder for us is most of our struggle is not with stuff we don't know. It's the stuff we do know that we're not doing. That God's already told us. But there's probably 10 things God's already said. Hey, this is an area of your life we need to adjust that we haven't adjusted. Well, give me something new. Well, how about let's do what we already know? And so what John the Baptist is like, he's out there preaching. The crowds are growing. People are flocking there. He's baptizing. And here's what he says. They come up to him. They're like, what's going on? What's going on? You're not like the polished professionals in Jerusalem. You're like that crazy wild-haired guy out in the wilderness. But man, there's something going on. And so verse 20, it shows us he knows who he's not. He confessed and he did not deny. But he confessed, I am not, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. So what's he saying? The word Christ there is not Jesus' last name. The word Christ there literally means anointed. Sometimes it's translated Messiah. Now anointed, just so you understand what's being said right here, anointed is the idea when the, you know, you get Israel and they had all these kings and when the kings would become the king, the priests would go over and anoint them with oil, kind of in a ceremony to say, you're now the king. But as you know, all the kings in Israel at best were decent and most of the time were bad kings. And so what happened is, as they started to study the scriptures and started to study about the coming Messiah, the, there's like somebody coming who's gonna be the perfect king. And somehow in those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, it kind of became to be thought of as sort of a mixture of a super soldier and a super politician, all wrapped into one, and that's where they say, he's gonna be the Messiah, he's gonna be the Christ, he's gonna be the one that's gonna kick the Romans out, and he's gonna make sure everything is good. And so they're asking, they're like, man, is that who you are? Is that who you are? And here's a great lesson for us. He understood he was not the answer to their problems. He just understood his whole job was to point people to 
who the answer to their problem was gonna be. The book, the book of John revolves around seven I am statements. And what's so refreshing is if you and I understand, because they're like, I am the resurrection, the truth, and I am the way, the truth, and the life, all those things. If we understand we are not the I am, that Jesus is the I am, then we can be pretty comfortable thinking, you know what, I'm the I am not. I am not the answer to other people's problems. I'm just supposed to point them to who is. And so here's what he says. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? Elijah was sort of like the equivalent in the Old Testament of John the Baptist. They described Elijah as hairy and wore a leather belt. I mean, Elijah was that guy. Elijah was that guy that would have been, he's out in the wilderness, he's harsh, he's strong. And they're like, and he was also prophesied because Elijah, Elijah goes off the scene in the last book of the, or the last book of the Old Testament. There's a book called Malachi. You go Malachi and then you go 400 years. It's that one blank page between your Old Testament and your New Testament. That represents 400 years. No, no word from God. No prophecy from God. Has God given up on us? What's happening? And right before that happens, he says, there's gonna be a forerunner, somebody like Elijah, somebody in the spirit of Elijah that's gonna come along and get ready and make things ready for the coming king. It's kind of like, like if a head of state was gonna go into a particular town, then they have a lot of people that go in front of them to make sure that the way is straight, the way is safe, the way is prepared. That's kind of what he's saying. He's like, there's gonna be somebody that comes in front of him to make sure. And so here comes John the Baptist looking all crazy, eating bugs and stuff. They're like, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? That's what's going on. He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. And they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? That's a great question. I'm not trying to get too psychological here, but that is a question you need to be able to answer. You know, who, who are you? What do you say about yourself? And one of the things I wanna to try to emphasize is you're gonna see that John got his confidence and his humility and really his definition of success. His definition of success was not gonna be in the applause that people were giving him, all right? It was not gonna be in the accolades. It wasn't gonna be in everybody thinking, oh, you're the guy, you're the guy. It wasn't in that at all. His whole, what we call self-esteem, his whole image, the way he saw himself was, you know what? I'm, it's connected to my relationship with Jesus. So here's what verse 23 says. Here's the way John answers it. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. He's quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And here's what you gotta see is the arrogance of the religious leaders kind of coming up with their pompous questions versus John's humility is a great example of how religion can cause us to be arrogant and pride and yet the gospel will allow us to be at the same time simultaneously bold and humble at the same time. And if we get the two confused, what happens is we do get arrogant and the big, the, big, the big lesson that you see when Jesus butts head with the religious leaders, and this is important for us because as a, as a Bible believing, we're all about the Bible. We teach the Bible. We make sure the songs go through a Bible matrix. So all that being said, the one caution we have to be careful of that you see Jesus warning even the people that got sent out here, they were experts in the first part of the Bible is they had forgotten, they had forgotten that the rules and all that stuff were to point to a relationship with the one that is now in their midst that they don't even recognize. And so they got arrogant, and that's what, that's what religion does. It makes you prideful, it makes you arrogant. Here's what John could have said. What John could have said is, when they said, who are you? How do you see yourself? 
He could have easily said, you know what? I'm the one that the la- I'm the last Old Testament prophet spoke about. That's who I am. Malachi said, I was gonna be here in Shazam, here I am. He could have said that. He could have said, the angels told my dad what to call me. That's how special I am. I'm the one that's gonna be the forerunner and is the forerunner and watch my next trick. I'm gonna introduce the savior of the world. He could have said that. He could have said, you guys are sitting there in Jerusalem and you got nobody coming to hear your sermons and look at all, I got thousands coming here and they're getting in the water. He didn't do any of that. All he did, he said, here's the way he describes himself. He said, I am a voice, that's all I am. I'm a mouthpiece. I'm a mailman. All I'm doing is trying to leverage my life for the one that's gonna give his life for me. That's all I'm doing. He's like, I'm not Elijah. Even though, by the way, Jesus actually said he did fulfill the prophecy of Elijah, which is kind of cool because it's always more important what Jesus says about you than what you even say about yourself, correct? But what you're gonna see in this case is that John the Baptist didn't get his significance in himself or his ministry, you know, like, like Jesus actually spoke a better word. And as I wrote this down, I put, I put down, the, how does the gospel give you humility and yet at the same time give you confidence? So here's, here's a couple of ways. It gives you humility and this is gonna be I know in our society, even in Christian circles, the whole thing is about your self-esteem and, and your self-image and, and you know, how do I think about myself. So listen carefully. I'm gonna try to talk precisely, but I need you to listen precisely. So don't m- misunderstand what I'm saying. But humility, the reason that Christians, we ought to be humble, and I'm gonna get to the confidence here in a second, but the reason we ought to be the humblest people on the face of the earth It's because when you understand the Bible, it is a result of, our humility is the result of realizing how bad and wicked my heart really is. It's realizing the Bible actually says the heart is deceitfully wicked, who can know it? So part of the humility is understanding my sin was so bad that Jesus had to die for my sins. So I understand I'm not gonna be strutting around heaven thinking I did an awesome job and I'm God's MVP. It's kind of that sense of humility of like, man, as bad as I might think my heart is, it actually, the Bible says, it's actually much, 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 much worse. And again, I know the world is telling us, I want you to listen carefully. Are, Are we fearfully and wonderfully made? Absolutely. Did God make us unique? Does God have a special call in your life? If you got a role to play, is your name going to be on those credits? And like, yeah, I mean, this is this, is, and it's awesome. But we also got to understand, in a world that's like, oh, you're a snowflake and you're a skittle, and and you know, you could be anything you want to be. Um, in that world, we have to also have a dose of humility to say, you know what? Bottom line is, I know myself. I've seen myself. I've seen me at my worst, and there's a, there ought to be some sense of humbleness there. But if you don't have the gospel, two, two counterfeits take place. Two counterfeits. One of them is shame. If you, don't, if you see yourself and you see your sin, but you don't marry to the gospel, then it just ends up being shame. And that's a counterfeit. The Bible says God is a lifter of your head, a lifter of your chin. You sing about it in the first song. That's that's. The gospel lifts your head. The gospel says, you know what? It's not about your performance, it's about Jesus' performance. Another counterfeit, though, is pride and arrogance, because here's, here's how that rolls in. What that rolls in is when we're doing good, when we're doing good, we're kind of like, man, I'm doing good. I'm doing pretty awesome. Man, I brought a tithe today. I uh, helped a little old lady across the street, 
And I read my Bible three times and I brought my journal and I'm doing awesome. Let me go back. The biggest warning Jesus gives religious people is is self-righteousness. And that is why, listen, we're all about the Bible, but that is why sometimes Bible-believing Christians can be the most arrogant, wicked, prideful, self-righteous people. It's because we get away from the gospel and we go to moralism. And so when you look at this, John the Baptist, he didn't even know it yet or he hadn't even said it yet. It's like it's all based on the gospel. What does the confidence give us? We get confidence there because we are valued. And this is super important. When I say valued, it's a little different than valuable. So again, are you valuable to God? Of course, you've been made in his image. Again, fearfully and wonderfully made, unique fingerprints. We kind of went over that last week, how God intricately made you so valuable, but we're not valuable in the sense of we use it like in sports. In sports, we'll say, well, that guy's the MVP. And what, what they're saying is our team wouldn't have made it very far without you. He is so valuable. She is so valuable. Our team was deficient unless she was scoring those goals, unless he was throwing those touchdown passes. And loved ones, here's the deal. You and I are more than valuable. We're actually valued, which is different. God does not have anybody that's like an MVP that's like, you know what, man, if I don't get Johnny saved, this whole kingdom thing's gonna be kind of on, you know, I'm not sure it's gonna actually work. Nobody like that. There's nobody where he's up just going back and forth around the throne. It's like, man, what if Susan, if Susan doesn't come to Christ, I'm not sure I can actually reach, I can't, I'm not sure I can reach that school. That's not it. It's better than that. Because if all you are is valuable for what you bring to the table, what happens when you don't bring the right stuff to the table? What happens when you fail and what happens when you fall and what happens when you're messing up? If it's based on what you bring to the table, then all that stuff gets crazy, right? I mean, think a few months ago. Remember when, uh, did y'all read that deal where somebody paid $518,000 for the last touchdown pass football that Tom Brady threw? Remember that? Like three months ago, Tom Brady, arguably the greatest quarterback of all time, he's you know, he retired, and his last touchdown pass was the guy named Mike Evans in the NFC Championship game. They lost, so that's like, that is, that's the, and so they auctioned this football off, and some real estate broker in Miami, Florida paid $518,000 for that last touchdown, that last football that Tom Brady threw. The problem is, three days after he pays $518,000, Brady decides he's gonna unretire. And all of a sudden, that football that was $518,000 was now worth like 150 bucks. Now, what happened? The circumstances changed. And so something that once was valuable is no longer valuable. But the difference is, you know what? If you understand, I've been bought with a price. I'm valued. It says a lot more about God than it does about us. And that is great. That's great, great news. We're more wicked than we can imagine, but we're more loved and accepted than we can ever even dare dream. And so here's, uh, here's what, when we understand that, we understand just like John the Baptist, it's not about me. Of all the freeing things I'm trying to learn that is a everyday lesson is being able to look in the mirror and go, it ain't about you. One of the healthiest things you can do is have the perspective, you know what? It's not, it's not about me. God loves me, but it's not about me. Now look how John the Baptist says this. Verse 24, they'd been sent from the Pharisees, verse 25. They asked him, 
then why are you baptizing? We'll get to that in chapter three. If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, in verse 26, John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, and here's, here's what he says, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now get what he's saying there. Here in a few chapters in John chapter 13 is that famous scene where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. John's taking it even a step further. And it's like, there's one standing among you. I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes and understand what he's saying. When they were walking in that day and time, you would walk in the dirt roads. They didn't have sanitation. They didn't have sewers. Animals would be doing their, what animals do, all that kind of stuff. You would walk in that. And he's like, there's somebody here. I'm not even worried to take off, I'm not even worried to take off his shoes. He says, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. In other words, here's what he's saying. I'm just a mouthpiece. I can't fix anyone. My life is to make much of God. Now, here's the challenge. We would never in church ever say verbally, we would never say, yeah, it's about me. We would not say that, I wouldn't think. I mean, nobody's gonna go, hey, I was just thinking, yeah, this whole planet revolves around me. Nobody's really gonna say it. But the hard part is we live in a culture that swims in it and then we get taken downstream and that is such a frustrating way to live, correct? I mean, if, it's all, if it is about you, if it is about me, do you know how much stuff has to go right in order for you just to have a good day? I mean, think about it. For you to have a good day, if it indeed is about you, I mean, the waiter has gotta be awesome. When that, if it's about you and that waiter's not on his game and that salad is 12 minutes late, you get frustrated. Man, who trained this dude? Why can't this restaurant, all the supply chain, oh, the great resignation, blah, 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 blah. Or if it's all about you, you gotta get on Hendersonville Road at five o'clock on a Friday and the whole thing has got to part just for you. I mean, you gotta be like Bruce Almighty. It's like, and the whole thing goes. That's, what, that's gonna happen if it's about you. Hey, you married folks, if it's about you, Man, your, your spouse has like got to be on her game. I mean, if you wake up and your spouse is in a bad mood and she's not having a good day, if it's about you, then you're not having a good day. I mean, you hope, you hope she's in a good mood. You hope he's going to have a good day. But if you're married, you know that doesn't always happen. I mean, it's like the wheel of fortune. You're like spinning that deal. Come on, good day. Come on, good day. I mean, you're hoping for a good day. Sometimes it's not a good day. But if it's all about you... <laughs> If it's all about you, then it's like, it's like I can't have a good day because you know what? She's not meeting my needs. He's not meeting my needs. And so here's what happens is John's like, you know, it's, it's, it's not even about me. I'm not even, I mean, it's not about me. It's, it's about God. It's about how do I leverage, whether I'm a preacher, whether I'm a plumber, whether I'm an accountant, how do I leverage it so that people can actually see God for who he is? You can pray for me here in about four or five weeks. I'm speaking at the commencements at a Christian university. I hadn't spoken at commencement in like six or seven years. And I've already figured out what I'm gonna say. The first words out, you know, you got all the pomp and circumstance and I gotta go find that robe and all the different colors and I don't even know what that, I gotta put all that stuff on. And, and the whole thing is like, you know what? 18 minutes to basically say, it's not about you. It's not about you. And the quicker we learn that, the more freeing it actually is. If we're a Christ follower, we've got to wake up in the morning and say, how do I leverage what I have, what platform God has given me for the glory of God? And you know how freeing that is? I mean, let me just take, let me give you three examples. Let's go back to the marriage deal for a second. If you are, let's say, newly married or you are engaged to be married, 
It, I, t- I promise you, a death knell to that thing is gonna be as if you look to her or you look to him to meet all of your needs, to help you be fully and finally satisfied. Now, I'm not saying what some preachers say. It's like, well, God, the marriage says, for, you know, marriage is about you being holy, not happy. Well, those are not mutually exclusive, okay? Happiness is a byproduct of a healthy marriage, all right? You wanna marry somebody and you wanna be happy. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But if your whole thing is, you know what, that person's gonna make me happy, first of all, they're gonna be crushed under the weight of that. They're gonna be crushed under the weight of that. And pretty soon, you will crush them under the weight of that. As we say all the time, who you idolize, he's gonna fix me. In six months, sister, you're gonna realize, you know what, he can't even remember to lift the toilet seat up and he is not gonna be able to fix the hole in your soul. So it's just not gonna happen. Second thing would be this, even if, uh, and by the way, married folks the same way. Sometime, sometime in marriage, if you've been married long enough time, it's not always that, it's not always those butterflies in your stomach, not always. You hope for those, those days still come and they're awesome, but it's, it's got, if, if it doesn't graduate from that, here's what happens. You get that seven year itch, you get that 10 year itch, you get somebody else who's paying more attention to you, and then all of a sudden you forget that God brought you together for the glory of his great name. And if you don't remember that, then what happens is it's very hard for you to love her as Christ loved the church. Then it's very hard for you to, be res- to respect him when he's not acting that awesome. And before you even write me an email, I know what you're gonna say. You're like, well, you don't know my husband. And the husband's gonna write me and go, you don't know my wife. And my husband's not respectable. And my wife is crazy or whatever it is. Here's what I would say to you. I would say this. Uh, I would say Jesus has a pretty messed up bride and he is ferociously committed to her. His messed up bride is sitting in this room and he knows, he knows all the stuff we all have and yet he hadn't given up and yet he's still committed to, he is committed to you. And so here's what I would say would be a great exercise that I mentioned half of it before, but uh, there's a guy named Johann Sebastian Bach who is arguably the greatest composer the world has ever known. Wrote tons of you know, cantatas and whatever those things are called, sonatas, cantata, whatever. I don't even know what they are, but it's awesome, it's fancy. So they, he writes all this stuff, and you would think, just based on the volume of stuff he's written, that it came easy to him. And actually reading about him, it didn't come easy to him all the time. Sometimes he would get writer's block. And so at the top of some of his papers and some of his compositions and some of his different scores and stuff that he did, he would write just JJ, which was a Latin phrase, basically, or the initials for a Latin phrase, that's like, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. So what he's doing at the start of what God called him to do, he's saying, Jesus, help me. And at the end of some of his compositions, he just put SDG, Soli Dea Gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. And what great bookends just to live life by is at the start of the day, it's like, Jesus, help me. Help me. Help me in my business, help me in my family, help me in my life, help me, in, help me at church. And then at the end of the day, it's like, man, to the glory of God alone. And that's what John the Baptist is doing. And so, you know, knowing who you are goes into verse 29. As you, it's gonna be based off what he has done. This sort of leads us into understanding what we're about to participate in with the Lord's Supper. Key verse is verse 29. I'm gonna read it all the way through, but just so you know, verse 29 is where we're gonna land. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him So that's John the Baptist. He sees Jesus coming toward him and he says, behold, which means to pay attention. It's like, get off Instagram, focusing on what I'm about to say. He's like, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're gonna come back to that. Let me read the rest. 
This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. See John 1, 1. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. Just a quick little thought here. What he's saying is that up until now, what you saw is when the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, would come on somebody in the Old Testament, he would come on a person for a particular time and a particular task, and then he would not be there any longer with that person. And what you're seeing here is Jesus is gonna do all of his ministry through the power of the Holy Spirit, which by the way, is a church. What happens in Acts chapter two is he says, you know what, I'm gonna give the Holy Spirit so that any believer would have this same, that's why we sing about a, quote, resurrection power, all right? So here's where it goes. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Okay, so here's a rule of Bible study that uh, we talk about all the time. I've, I can't remember if I mentioned it early in the service or not. I know I did in the last service. So one of the biggest things you gotta remember is, is um, first rule of Bible study is what did it mean then? So when you're looking at a passage like this and John the Baptist steps out and, and talking to a big crowd and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who is he talking to? Now with a little bit of background, what you see is that John the Baptist was a Jew talking at this point primarily to Jewish people. Not exclusively, but primarily. So the question is, what did that audience hear when John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Well, remember, here's the, here's the easy way to remember it. The biggest thing that had ever happened in the history of Israel up until this point, because it pointed to the biggest thing that ever happened in the history of the world, but the biggest thing that had happened that every Jewish boy, every Jewish girl knew about was called the Passover. The Passover, the Passover was actually the meal that Jesus was having with his disciples on the Thursday before the next day he would be crucified. When they're up in that upper room and they're having this meal and you see their, you know, the Rembrandt version, all, which is not really accurate as far as the Rembrandt version, they're not all sitting around on little stools and all this, but he's having this, he's having this meal that would be actually connected to the Passover that he changes into what we call the Lord's Supper. So. If you need a Bible study or if you kind of just, you know, if you don't know who uh, Christian Bale or Charlton Heston is or whoever, then let me just kind of explain what happened way, 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 way back. So quick little flyby. God had promised to a guy named Abraham that, you know what? My people are gonna actually go into the promised land, but then they end up going into 400 years of slavery to the Egyptians. And then a guy named Moses, all right? Moses comes on the scene. God raises up Moses He's the one that goes to Pharaoh and it's like, you know, let my people go, let my people go. Remember that? Let my people go. You know, Pharaoh's like, won't do it. And so what God does is God turns up the heat with what are known as the 10 plagues, which is on a sidebar. These 10 plagues, not only do they accelerate in intensity and severity, they are also, when you do a parallel view of them, every single one, which by the way, um, I think it's, what, raise your hand. Let me think, uh, who says the, uh, the frogs are the worst one? Nobody? Come on now. All right, that's, that's my own. Can you imagine frogs? I mean, fro who says gnats? Okay. 
Who says, I don't even know how to find the book of Exodus. Put your hand up. Okay, so here's, here's the idea. For me, it's frogs, but he, every single one of these was a direct affront to Egyptian gods, which is amazing. This is like the Old Testament equivalent of the WWE Smackdown that every single god they would have, God would like throw this plague. It's like, boom, pinned every single time. And then a couple of times, Pharaoh would actually go, okay, 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 all right. All right, you guys can go and worship the Lord in the desert. You can do that. And then the plague would be removed and then Pharaoh would change his mind. And sometimes we're kind of like, oh, I can't believe he would do that. I can't believe he would tell God he would do one thing and then when the pressure gets off, he wouldn't do it. Like we've never said, God, if you get me out of this mess, God, if you restore my marriage, God, if you help me get out of this sin, I will never, ever, ever do this again. And yet we kind of go back to the same thing. So do all these plagues, but then the 10th the one, the 10th plague, he said, uh, he tells Moses, he's like, this 10th plague is gonna be called the plague of the firstborn. And the plague of the firstborn, he says, when this comes about, he's gonna let you go, just so you know. Get ready. It actually goes into the kind of bread they had so that they could take it, because as soon as this happens, you know what, you guys are gonna go. You're gonna be on a trip. You're gonna, you're gonna be on, uh, on a journey. And so um, here's what he says. He says, I want you to take out I want you to take, I'm, he said, I'm gonna take out. God's like, I know this is kind of, this goes against some of our peace. Like how, and I'll explain the why in a second. But God says this, he says, I'm gonna take out the firstborn of everybody. Of everybody. Jews included. Firstborn is gonna, firstborn of the Egyptians. A lot of times the Jews didn't have to suffer through these plagues. Sometimes they did, but most of the time they didn't. And he said, listen, firstborn, even the animals, he's like the firstborn is gonna be taken, is gonna be taken out. And here's what he said. He said, if there is no blood on the doorpost, then the firstborn is gonna die. And the reason why we do it, because all of them have sinned against God. The Egyptians have done it by rebellion, but the Jews have done it through religion. And so he said, everybody's included as this one. So here's what he tells. You can read about it in Exodus 12. Here's what he says. He says, dads, I want you to go out and I want you to get a spotless lamb, a lamb without defect. Don't get, don't get some cripple. Don't get some, something that has some flaws in it. I want you to get the best you got. I want you to get a blameless one, a spotless one. That's important because we're gonna come back to it. And he said, I want, you to bring, I want you to bring him in. And it's actually, there's a little note that they actually would bring him into the home for a little bit of time, like a pet, so not just go out and get one in the field. I want you to bring him into the home. Call him a name, if you will. Call him Spot, call him whatever. I want you to bring him into the home. And he said, uh, when you bring it in, uh, I was trying to think, because they're gonna, they're gonna do a meal, they're gonna do a special meal, but he's like, I want you to bring in the lamb and I want you to kill it. And so probably over and over and over again around the land, these dads would go in there and they would bring this lamb and a lot of them would have little sons, little five-year-olds, little six-year-olds who had probably gotten in love with this little lamb. And they would bring this lamb in and he, the dad's like, hey, here's what happened, here's what we're gonna have to do and I'm gonna have to kill this lamb. And surely some of those little five-year-old boys like, well, dad, it's not fair, it's not fair. Why are you killing the lamb? That lamb hadn't done anything to you. That lamb is part of our family. Why are you killing the lamb? And the dad is going to have to explain to the son, listen, it's either going to be the lamb or it's going to be you. At which point the five-year-old probably went something like, come here, come here, little lamb. Come here, come here. Come, here. Come, on, come on, come on. Come on. 
And here's what, here's what was being taught. Here's what was being taught is the fact that, uh, I mean, the message of the Passover is that God is holy, sin is costly, God is merciful, and that there can be a substitute. God provides an alternative payment that the firstborn doesn't have to die as long as a payment has been made. If a lamb dies in its place, then the firstborn doesn't. So here's what he says. I want you to take the blood of the lamb and I want you to put it over the doorpost. And he says, if I see the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of the house, then the firstborn doesn't die. And if the blood is not over the doorpost, then the firstborn does die, which is a great question for us. Is the blood of the lamb of God, is the blood of the lamb of Jesus, is that over your house? All right, is that over your life? Because this institutes kind of the rest of the Bible. You got the law that's given, and then you got all that sacrificial system. It's kind of like the law is the mirror and the sacrificial system is the sink. And all right, you look in the mirror and you're like, I gotta fix something, I gotta fix something. But the sink is there to help you fix it. And so throughout all this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the law says you're broken, you're messed up, then the sacrificial system said basically this. It says, all right, sin is costly. This sin costs this. That sin costs this. And then as you look at the, the, the whole Bible, the, that was a good, it's like a shower. The shower, it's good, but it doesn't last that long. You gotta take another shower like the next day. And then John the Baptist steps out on this hinge verse, and that's when he's like, behold, take note, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, who doesn't just cover over the sin of the world, he actually will take it away. And so what he's doing is he's tying in Jesus to all of that Jewish history. And then Jesus does it at the end of his ministry when he says, it is finished, tetelestai, paid in full. What is finished? All that sacrificial system, all that, all that stopgap measures, and that's why he says, I am the Lamb of God. I am the one that all of the prophets pointed to. I'm the one that the sacrificial system shattered. And so here's what it is. For you and I, before we take the Lord's Supper, you gotta know, has the blood of the lamb been sprinkled over the doorposts of my house? It's not a matter. Listen, you gotta get this, because I said it last week. It's not a matter. I get in trouble with this, and it gets changed around. It's not that you don't change but the gospel is not about your performance. We change not to be accepted by God, but through the grace and the blood of Jesus, we get accepted and adopted and redeemed and reconciled to God. And then from that, that is the motivation, then we change. But that's the reason. That's the reason we build houses for people. Why? Because God built a house for us. That's the reason we try to focus in on adoption. Why? Because God adopted us. The whole thing is from that. If we get them flipped around though, that gets ugly quick. We flip it around, it's like, I'm gonna do this stuff so God, so God will accept me. Then what did Jesus die for? No, it said he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus knew all of your junk. He knows all of your stuff. He knows all of your history. He knows all of that. He knows all of it. It's like the Carfax deal where they bring up a Carfax on a car and you bring it up and you're supposed to know, how, okay, how much is this car worth? And it was in a wreck or it's a lemon or whatever. Listen, God's got the Carfax on you and it ain't pretty. You know what it says? It's like lemon doesn't start half the time, all right? 
pulls to the right or pulls to the left, whichever one, just pulls that way. And he said, I'm still gonna pay full price for her. And so when you and I get to the Lord's Supper, you know what the whole thing is? When you look at that bread, that bread is supposed to be, it's like, remember that lamb they brought in? They said, get it blameless. So when you look at that bread, that is, that's the sinless life of Jesus. They lived the life you were supposed to live. It was his body, his broken body. You look at that little juice, it's not, this is not like some little gimmick deal. You look at that juice and it's a picture. What's the picture of? The picture is started way, way back when they would take the lamb, kill the lamb, thousands of animals later, behold the lamb of God. That's the substitution, that's either your sin. So here's my challenge, because you're gonna see a video when you're, you're gonna have a nice song and we're gonna be doing this and I'm gonna explain that in just a second. The temptation when you see a video of Jesus on the cross is to look away. It's like, I don't, I don't wanna see that, I don't wanna, and what, that is in direct contradiction to what Jesus tells us to do at the Lord's Supper. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this, I want you to think, I want you to think this way, because when we see that in its proper context, not just in like, oh, that's gory, oh, that's, uh, that's messy. The reason it's gory, the reason it's messy is because our sin was messy. It's because our sin was that bad. The great news if you're a Christian is that, listen, God knows all that stuff and he loves you, not the future version of you, not the guy that's on three years, I'm gonna be a better person, he loves you. The question you've gotta answer is, you gotta make sure, has the blood of Christ been sprinkled over the doorpost of my life through repentance and faith? I mean, otherwise, what are you taking the Lord's Supper for? And if you don't have that, then this is the most depressing time for you. This is a terrible waste of 72 minutes. But if you know that, or if you wanna know that, it's like, this is it. This is what my life has pointed toward. I come to faith in Jesus, and then for the rest of my days, I make much of him. I'm just a nobody who, who wants to let everybody know about the somebody.